Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday night. It's going to be a really fascinating hour tonight. We're really excited to have, really honored to have a guest uh, from Jersey, which is an island in between France and England, right there in the English Channel. It's closer to France than it would be to, to England. Uh, Stuart Sivray is here, and he is, as we'll explain to you in the next hour, a real hero amongst the people of Jersey because, because he has been able to not only expose um, the incredible child abuse that happened there over almost half a century, but he also has been able to bring light to the world about how um, corrupt and, and mob-driven the entire island really is. Uh, Stuart, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us tonight. Good evening. You know, what I, what I find so fascinating about your story, I'm trying to find the way in for an audience that might not be so familiar with it, but we all remember the scandal around Jimmy Savile, um, who was a famous entertainer in the UK, not so famous uh, in the United States, but was well known enough for people to know that it was a big deal. He was a BBC sort of child uh, show entertainer and broadcaster, uh, and really, really well known in the UK. Most of the kids in you in the UK would have grown up uh, watching Jimmy Savile until um, everything came crashing down. He was accused of being part of this child abuse uh, scandal that erupted in Jersey. Um, and of course, he wasn't, mm-hmm. in fact, one of the first people to be accused. There was a long history of you fighting for uh, justice for these children that had been abused there. Um, and you were the health minister on the island of Jersey, which has its own sort of jurisdiction. It's not part of the UK particularly uh, or necessarily. Um, so and then- tell us a little bit about how you came to hear about the fact that there was almost half a century of child abuse uh, that was going on in Jersey. Well, I, I was um, a senator then in the island's parliament, and um, I was the minister for health and social services. You know, I was a cabinet member, you know, with the executive responsibility, legal and political responsibility for health and social services on the island. And it started to become drawn to my attention by a few minor things at first, towards late 2006, that standards were, were not good and were not improving and problematic things were happening in the island's social services system, the island's childcare system. So I started, you know, inquiring into these things, you know, as you do, you know, wanting to try and make sure that things are not getting too bad and, you know, where things have gone wrong, they're getting fixed. But the more I dug into the issues, the more and more disturbing things I discovered. And I started having to work directly with whistleblowers and survivors. So there were a lot of good frontline staff, you know, who, who came to me as whistleblowers. And it became absolutely clear to me, it was quite a, a hard thing to get your head around when, when you're like a member of the cabinet, and you've actually got the legal responsibility for child protection. And it started to dawn on me, certainly in early 2007, that my own senior civil servants were simply lying to me. And not only to me, it was pretty much clear that this had been a feature of the system, the Jersey way, so to speak, mm-hmm. for, for, for decades. And the, the more I started asking you know, questions about things like the child custody system in Jersey, where they were putting children into solitary confinement, uh, you know, difficult children, they were putting them in solitary confinement for months and months, years in some cases, rather than giving them the health care you know, and support and, and attention they needed. Now, they were being treated in ways that were simply illegal, you know, to treat an adult, you know, in, in, in these ways. And it became clear clear to me and the survivors and people I was working with that, in fact, you know, the, the Jersey police force 
in the past had been a part of the problem themselves. So we were investigating this with a view to slapping a big fat dossier of evidence onto the Would desk you, of the judge. You say were part of the problem themselves. They were part of the abuse or they were just part of the cover-up? Uh, they, they, historically, they were very, very much part of the cover-up. There were, were, there have been a few actual, you know, abusers and real crooks in in the Jersey Police, but you know, not not the vast majority. The, the real problem with the police force was the cover ups and the failures to properly and impartially and objectively investigate, with a view to enforcing the rule of law. And we should explain course, that Jersey is one of those places where it's it's an offshore haven for a lot of very wealthy companies and individuals who want to hide their their wealth from taxes. So it creates a wealth divide. I mean, there is a lot of very, very wealthy people on, on your island and uh, oh, and yeah. also uh, a lot of not very wealthy people on your island. And there's a mm-hmm. incentive for the wealthy people to keep things uh, quiet, as it were, uh, in terms of any scandal or anything like that, because they don't want their wealthy financial investors to be scared away by any scandal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's absolutely how it is. And, you know, I was one of the poor people. You know, my, my family come from... You know, certainly after World War Two, my particular part of the family were, you know, my, my my grandmother was, you know, with her existing children, you know, was deported to a Nazi internment camp called Biberak, where she gave birth to my mother. And I, and I, I suppose essentially you could say I ended up coming from that very, very poor working class or even underclass section of Jersey because my family was so damaged, you know, and, and messed up by the occupation experiences. So when I first got into politics in Jersey, and it wasn't as any kind of like, you know, hard left, you know, kind of character. I got into politics by accident because a lot of the seats in the Jersey Parliament weren't even contested then. But I, yeah, I came from a very poor and, and powerless background. So I was very conscious of the needs of poorer people in Jersey. And there was a huge, as you say, a huge wealth and, and class divide in, in Jersey. And... You know, the, the, the instances of how that's affected ordinary people on the island are, are many and varied. And that's a very big deal that you managed to get to all the way to senator and to, and to the health minister. I mean, that's, that's a massive achievement for someone who came, as you say, from the poorer parts of the island. Um, and I gathered they weren't that uh, receptive to your arrival there. And, no, I mean, when I first got elected, firstly, as a deputy, which is like where you represent a smaller district and... When you, you know, if you get elected as a senator, you're voted for by the whole island as a constituency. Well, one of the reasons I and a few other people tried to get into local politics because we knew that basically the system was corrupt and class-ridden and and not responsible. So we wanted to try and change it. So I was never expecting, even back then when I was 25, you know, in 1990, I, I wasn't expecting it to be easy or to be an easy ride. But the the sheer degree of hatred and and resentment and, and anger and hostility that the senior establishment people in the legislature and, and, and the judiciary, you know, which are both intermingled on Jersey, they felt me it was quite startling, you know, uh, and that was very much a part of my experience throughout my time in the Jersey legislature. Um, absolute, absolute class war. You know, the, these people felt absolute contempt uh, and, and resentment to anyone representing poorer interests. And we'll find out during this hour what happened uh, to your political career over there. But last night on BBC, there was a remarkable documentary that was made about you and everybody else of, on the island of Jersey that uh, 
really it was kind of spectacular to watch and heartbreaking as well because of the amount of pain and and suffering that uh, some of the people on the island went through but spectacular because you almost single-handedly drove interest in this uh, in this investigation and made sure that justice did come to light over almost you know i don't know how many years probably over two decades or longer um and so uh, you had a bit of a moment last night where hopefully um you know you were redeemed by by the BBC in some ways, by putting on this documentary about you? Well, perhaps. I, I wouldn't say I, I was alone in driving forward the issues. I mean, I, I was um, a politician, so I was, I was trying to be a, a responsible and good politician. And, you know, I was discovering things from my constituents and believing them and taking them seriously and other people like whistleblowers. So as, as a politician, as you would expect, you know, a, a good politician to be, I was simply like the, 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 the spearhead and, and the public voice for what was actually a, a much broader grassroots kind of issue. I wouldn't have discovered the things I discovered nor been able to fight them had it not been for the bravery and, and assistance uh, of, of others. Yeah, but there was a half a century of politicians before you that uh, didn't do anything about it, and they must have known. Oh, I think I think it's a lot worse than that. I think you're looking at li- literally, frankly, millennia of poor governance mm-hmm. on Jersey. And Jersey is essentially Jersey is very much and still actually a feudal society, literally. And people may not grasp this, but you know the, the monarchy still has huge power when it comes to places like Jersey. So we'll perhaps get on to that a bit later. But yeah. back, just to move back a bit to address a point yeah. you, you raised earlier, um, when these things started to get exposed, you know, I, 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 as Health and Social Services Minister, I was investigating you know, the child protection failures and the cover-ups. And I happened, coincidentally, to get asked a question uh, about you know, a, a social services matter in the Jersey Parliament in July 2007, so I gave an honest answer to that question, which was actually covered in the documentary last night. And I said, look, frankly, if I'm being asked, do I have actual confidence in Jersey's child protection systems? Frankly, I have to say no. And I'm going to commission an independent, independent external investigation. And, and you know what, you know, Stuart, I didn't know. I'm going to stop you there because I have that clip ready to play. Sure. I'm going to play it yeah. and then LB will hear from you. On the other side of that, I was yeah. going to try to get you in before, but this is a good time to, no, to play this clip. Okay. It's 16th July, uh, 20. 2007. Senator Sivray had been very concerned and he made a statement in the states of Jersey that he did not have any confidence in his own department in terms of the way in which they dealt with child protection. We are failing badly in this area and um, I'm probably going to be seeking to initiate a major independent review into the whole sphere of child welfare, child protection in Jersey. All of a sudden, he was making these really strong allegations against his own officers publicly. Um, that's unacceptable that, that, under any ministerial code. I had a great kind of sympathy for the issues that he was raising, but very often he was very confrontational in terms of staff. And he did lay himself open, really, to the possibility of his removal, which is very unfortunate. Senior operation people were convened to sign a motion of no confidence in Senator Stuart Sivray as health minister. And that would be taken forward by the chief minister and used as a vehicle 
to get rid of him. Rather than the child abuse being the problem, they flipped the script so I was the problem. That I would be, by saying these things, I was bullying staff, undermining staff morale. And this became the pretext to uh, having me sacked as health and social services minister. He was thrown out of office. He was subject to all sorts of negative briefing with the media. And in some ways, they've been on his back ever since. I was horrified, and I made it quickly clear, I am not getting involved in this. Craig, I'm a police officer. I'm supposed to serve the Queen. I'm not getting involved in this sordid business that you're up to. People will try and defend themselves and say, no, well, that wasn't how it was at all. Oh, yes, it was. I want to stop there because I don't want to take up too much of the documentary. People have to see it themselves. Mm -hmm. But those two people who just spoke there, one was the former first minister. The other one is a former, uh, was an external home affairs minister. Um, I mean, they seem to live in a lovely home. They seem to have lovely places, very palatial looking places. And their reasoning behind, um, you know, being upset with you about this and and taking action as they did later on with you is, is, you know, is so ridiculous considering the scale of things you were reporting. You're reporting this massive amount of child abuse mm-hmm. and they're concerned about the fact that, you know, you might have been a little inappropriate with staff. Well, but both of those individuals, as you correctly observe, are fantastically rich. They're both multi, multi, multi-millionaires. And um, the things that they are saying there about me confronting staff are simply untrue. You know, this was one of the, the key kind of like, um, um, you know, um, kind of tactics that the establishment used against me. They had to find some excuse, some grounds for, um, you know, criticizing me and removing me. You know, they, they had to get rid of me in order to get the child abuse cover-ups, get the lid back down on it all. Because they weren't aware that those establishment politicians and the judiciary on Jersey were not aware, as I wasn't, and the people I was working with, we were not aware of the covert police investigation. So when I first started raising these matters publicly in the Jersey Parliament, the Jersey establishment, as it were, the the Jersey mob thought that if we can just crush and discredit Stuart Sivray, we can get the whole lid back down. Which is so often the case with, yeah. with critics. Yeah, that, that'll, be our, that'll be our problem solved. So they, they came up with this pack of lies that I had been, you know, like kind of angrily confrontational staff, uh, you know, senior management staff. In fact, the opposite was the case. You know, I, I remember actually having one of my uh, very senior civil servants, deputy chief officer, in fact, literally screaming abuse at me across the boardroom table for asking questions about the failures of the then Jersey Child Protection Committee, a kind of small quango. And the aggression and the bullying and hostility and problem creating was all directed at me by very powerful, very senior civil servants and their political allies. But, you know, as we know from when you study the cases of whistleblowers in systems, it's always the case that the system that's doing something wrong and wants to cover it up best form of defense is attack they attack the whistleblower or something right. so this was exactly the same script this was exactly the same game gameplay you know so there was no truth in in that at all and in fact one of the pretty senior civil servants in my department at least at least one of them probably more bluntly are absolutely uh, horrifying, multi-victim, uh, Savile-esque child abusers. Oh, wow. And 
those those particular you know individuals are walking free on jersey to this day unbelievable lb do you have any uh, things you want to jump in here and then uh, we'll pick it up on the storyline a little bit yeah i do i do uh, so I want to, I do want to give a, I know it is, it would be amazing for everyone watching this who hasn't seen the BBC documentary, which just happened last night, um, or is not aware of Stuart's journey to watch that. Um, and I know we don't want to take away from that, but I do think it's important here to give a little bit more context so everybody can understand really what Stuart's job was mm-hmm. and the risk that he didn't even know he was taking just by doing his job. Um, mm-hmm. So what had been happening, uh, it, specifically what's shown in the BBC documentary, they really focus on one of the children's homes where children, uh, and the ages were, how young were they, Stuart? Like three or five? Up to, oh, some, in some cases, yes. Some, some of them were, yeah. were, you know. Some of them uh, were in, in little, yeah. little, little babies, orphans, uh, uh, up to whatever the age of adult was, I don't know when they aged out, 16, 17, 18. Yeah, uh, back, back in the old days, back in the days when HDLG, uh, Odile Garen was operating, basically children were kind of you know, just thrown out, you know, at the age of 16, you know, basically. 16, okay. So there was the documentary, although there were several homes, focused on one home, and that, uh, it, can you pronounce the name of it? It's difficult for me. I, I have a bad. Especially I had dental work today. Yeah, Lagaran, right? Hotel Lagaran. Hotel Lagaran, which became a big explosive story in the UK. I, we didn't oh. get much of it over here, quite frankly, not as much as as we probably should have. But this was a this was an industrial scale rape factory of uh, for children <laughs> who were the most vulnerable children. Uh, uh, within that, that were the citizens of Jersey and that the Jersey government was responsible for. And they were yeah. being uh, sexually, emotionally, physically abused on an industrial scale at this, at this place by many, many people. The, the documentary didn't get too much into outsiders coming in outside of Jimmy, mm-hmm. um, whatever his name is, uh, but uh, the Stop. people working there. Yeah. And, but every, every night, and the survivors, those who were able to survive this, because many did not, those children mm-hmm. who were able to survive this and grew up have been trying to tell the story of this place and of what happened to them. And no one was believing them. And so Stuart comes into his job and his job literally is to oversee child protective services as a politician. And because mm-hmm. that was his new job as, a, as the senator, the, the, ch- the child, the victims were coming to him and trying to get him to listen to their story and to believe them. And so Stuart is hearing story after story after story and meeting these victims, many of whom were terrified to even speak about it. So you're having to meet them in, in, in locations that they felt sure. safe with, right? And yep. you know, some in the dead mm-hmm. of night, some in the day. And yep. so here he is, this is his job to oversee child protective services. And all of these people are coming to him and telling him how they were victimized within the system, real crimes, massive crimes against them at, on, a, on a level that had been being covered up. So what Stewart does and what you see in the documentary, despite all of the, uh, those two individuals that are on there, and I mainly the man was like the worst to me um, of just 
calling him, you know, attacking him. What he did was he went to the floor of the, of, of the Senate, right, where they were and said, we have a problem. We need to address it. Um, this is what it is. And, and they all seemed to know what it was, Stuart. Everybody was like, stop, stop. Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. It's not like they literally shut him down while he was speaking. He said, we're going to close the session if you don't shut up. And he just kept saying, and you were literally only saying, we just need to look into this, please. We have a problem. We have to investigate. I'm going to do an investigation. Right, right. This just really, I'm just trying to do my job here. And the whole parliament yeah. freaks out and they stop so that this can't be on the record. They were so terrified that you were even mm. speaking truth onto the record. And the truth was simply at that time, I'm getting victims coming to me and we need to look into this. That was what he was saying, everybody. That was it. Now the police investigation was going on that you didn't know about, and then that explodes. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing gets weaponized in this way that it's just insane. So I recommend everybody watch the BBC, watch that documentary. But um, I think it's, it's just important to give the context of how massive the abuse was, how long it had been gone, that there were survivors, they were coming to you, this came to you out of left field, and you were just trying to do yeah. your job. Yeah. Most of the survivors, traditionally people that are, are, are poor and powerless and have been harmed by the excesses of power on Jersey, are terrified, you know, of, of rocking the boat. You know, people are frightened of the establishment. So even a lot of survivors and victims who had been, you know, living with what happened to them for many, many, many years had never spoken out about it, never dared to go to a politician about it or anything of that nature. Um, but because, you know, I, I had, you know, a, a good public rep record as being, you know, fairly, you know, fearless and, you know, doing what was right, asking the right questions, you know, and um, believing people and, and not being a part of the traditional establishment, that gave me, I think, a, a degree of trust by, by survivors and victims that perhaps, and a degree of security that they felt that they could come to me and, you know, they weren't going to be victimized or something terrible because they had spoken to a politician. So I, I guess I was the first politician, you know, effectively on the scene in Jersey, who people felt they could trust and open up to about these things. And that's kind of like how and why, you know, I guess people started to come to me. And one of the international, you know, I think things that's useful for an international audience to recognize about Jersey that Jersey depicts itself as being an immensely respectable, thoroughly law-abiding place, you know, with its proper prosecution system, police force and judiciary, and it's very, very well regulated. You know, that's, that's the official spin about Jersey. And of course, Jersey hosts, you know, a transnational, a global finance industry economic, right. economically it's worth trillions of dollars. And... You know, when you look at the claims by Jersey to be a, a, a safe and respectable offshore finance centre, you have to ask yourself, well, how much of that can we believe? If this place cannot do something as rudimentary and doesn't want to do something as basic and rudimentary as protect children from abuse, and it will, in fact, oppress and suppress you know, and make the major opposition politician for speaking out about child abuse, if this place doesn't care about children's rights to that degree 
Can we really expect it to be properly and seriously and effectively regulating a dark money offshore finance industry that's worth billions of years? Of course not. If these people can't protect vulnerable children, they're certainly not going to protect good governments and good citizens around the world from money laundering and all kinds of other financial crimes. We can be quite sure of that. And I think it goes a step further for me in terms of trying to really understand, and I still don't understand it. I can make a guess and a really good educated guess, but there there isn't an answer to this right now. And the question is, why did all of these people believe in the establishment the health, the ministers themselves, and the only people they answer to, which is the crown. Okay, this doesn't go through parliament. Mm-hmm. It goes right to the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of skips over that, right? Jersey does. So mm-hmm. why did they believe that protecting children threatens their finance industry? With that, who's drawing that parallel? If anything, you know, and they kept in the documentary, I was so struck by that, that minister that was technically, I guess, your boss, the man in the blue shirt and the really, you know, fabulous living room, whatever Frank that Walker. was. Frank Walker. I was struck mm-hmm. by him over and over and over again. Every time the camera was on him, he kept say, he kept saying what a, th- what, how this excuse of like, well, this is something that happens everywhere. Child abuse happens everywhere. It's not unique to Jersey. So we didn't want to be branded with that because that would hurt Jersey. And I was looking out for Jersey. That was his take. And it's like, well, your own argument defeats your thing. If child Mm -hmm. abuse does happen everywhere, then why is Jersey incapable of addressing it and helping the victims? It doesn't hurt your brand. To, to actually, by your own argument, it does not hurt you to actually care for those children. It actually hurts you to not care for them and to cover up abuse. That's what hurts you. So what is really going on here? I don't feel satisfied that we got an answer as to what's really going on. I don't. No. I'm sorry, guys. I don't. No. Something else is going no. on. Yeah. You're, 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 you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Look, Jer- Jersey's become the the first and only jurisdiction on the face of the planet to sack a social services minister for trying to protect children. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it says a lot. You know, I mean, so I mean they, what, they what obviously does that say about the true nature of governance here. The place seems to be run entirely by the desire to grow the finance sector. I mean, looking at that documentary and doing the research, it does feel like that's all they really care about is growing the finance sector and making sure that, you know, the, the, they attract as much business into the, onto the island. And therefore, that gets prioritized over everything else. And, um, and in that, they have to sign a, um, agreements with these companies, including companies like Apple, that says that, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to guarantee a, a, a secure government they're going to guarantee yeah. that it's going to be free of scandal. That it's you know they're, they're a strongly regulated place, and they and they're you know mm-hmm. they don't want to look under any stones because if they do turn up anything anything nasty, then they're going to have to reveal that to their um, these investors and then contradict their their assurances to those companies and those wealthy people. I sure. think that's that's the mechanism, and it's obviously wrong. But I also think the other thing that you're pointing to is there is sort of a especially when you look at the, at the monarchy itself, there are you know, several ties to, to different scandals revolving um, underage children. And of course, one of them recently with the Epstein scandal was Andrew 
Um, and yep. that, that became a big news thing that it got Andrew, you know, didn't have any, his, all his uh, titles taken away from him. Um, but the other one that came, it <laughs> reminds me of is Jimmy Savile himself was really good friends with Prince Charles, who is the heir That's to right. the throne. I mean, and I would yeah. say really good friends. They're really good friends. There's some photographs um, of just the various times throughout their career um, that you saw Charles with Jimmy Savile. There was plenty of opportunity for um, for Charles to know what Jimmy Savile was up to. And yet oh, we didn't find out about Jimmy Savile until several years after you found out uh, that this uh, child abuse was happening, that there may have been some sort of cover-up um, involving yeah. Jimmy's involvement in that. Well, the, the Jersey child abuse um, controversy, you know, kicked off, as we've already explained, in July 2007. And as I, as I discovered later in 2007, because, you know, paradoxically enough, because the establishment had sacked me as a health and social services minister, you know, in an effort to discredit me, that had the opposite effect to what they wanted suddenly dozens dozens maybe hundreds of child abuse victims who in the yeah. past have feared, feared that they were never going to be believed they suddenly thought my god we're, we're not alone other people suffered the same thing here's somebody in power wanting to investigate it and he's been clobbered by the system so we know he's he's right and he's good so you know th th that just flooded to me and it was late in 2007 I think going from memory, when I, I heard, you know, indeed from one of the one of the um, you know people interviewed in in the film, one of the survivors in in the film last night, you know, I started to hear about Savile and his activities on Jersey, and it's it's fascinating that you know, in spite of this, the real truth about Jimmy Savile didn't come out until late 2011 after his death. So you have a situation whereby here was an investigation going on, on on Jersey that could have could have brought Jimmy Savile to justice mm -hmm. before before his death. Right. Now the, the interesting so basically the died. And no one found no one found out until after his death. Is basically what happened, right? I, I think Close you know when you study the when you study the the kind of British um, establishment attitudes to child abuse and child you know protection failures. It's actually kind of it was actually kind of pretty well known behind the scenes amongst Savile's kind of circle, you know. And I think even you know, investigative journals like Private Eye magazine might have published the odd little, you know, allegation about him being an abuser um, in 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 the past. But of course, the whole system, you know, was on his side. You know, he was Sir Jimmy Savile, OBE, friend of the royal family, um, and you know had all those kind of connections he was a famous fundraiser for charities and so on so even though there were there was plenty of rumor amongst the british establishment circles and those in power about savile none of it was ever acted upon and there were a lot of other very senior sorry i just want i just want people to understand that what that the connection with savile is that there were victims that's from this Say it again, the place. Haute de la Garonne. There were victims from Haute de la Garonne who had identified him as coming to that facility and abusing them there. That he knew that this was a place to go and abuse children as an outsider, yeah. not someone who worked there. So it's because the abuse victims were naming him. 
not Stuart. Mm-hmm. The abuse victims yep. were naming it. Okay. So I make that clear. Yeah, well, one of the at least one, probably more, frankly, of the of the uh, senior civil servants in in my own department, um, who is a child abuser, only still walking around free today, was you know friends with Savile and and, and knew of him. Um, I think having kind of had to delve into the whole Jersey child abuse cover up, it's absolutely clear that the place was known and regarded as a soft touch for child abusers, for pedophiles, certainly throughout the post-World War II years. You know, and, you know, Jersey was occupied by the Nazis uh, during World War II. And interestingly, some of the very, some of the older, quite elderly people who had been orphans in Odelagaran during the World War II period said that they were actually treated better and well during the Nazi occupation period than they had been before or that they were after. Because, you know, the, 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 these, you know, traditional inherited Jersey crime families, some of them at least were frightened of the Nazis. That's, you know, in addition to the rest of them that were collaborating with the Nazis. So this, this goes back decades and decades. And I think it's absolutely clear. One of the things that I've learned I've had to become quite an expert in, you know, what I what I call the the political economy of child abuse, and it's become very clear to me that child abuse is a tool in the, the mafia toolbox, and has been, you know, around the world, you know, for for many many decades. You know, you know, I call it the um the commodity of concealment, you know, and and an absolutely key way that mafias mafia syndicates get power is via entrapment. Yes, you know, and right. clearly, I think Jersey was used actually as an entrapment venue for various influential and powerful people over the decades. I think that that much is 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 very clear. And you know, the people doing you know, the entrapping and the, the kind of mafia syndicates that run Jersey, who are essentially all of Jersey's law firms. You know, the the, the law firms are the mafia syndicates. Um, they you know, knew that, you know, they could do all this really, really hardcore corruption on Jersey without really any fear of really being properly brought to justice because these are the people who control the system. You know, one, the way, an, an economical way to describe Jersey is simply that this place is a mob town, okay? It's simply a, a total mob town. And the Jersey Mafia syndicates, which are centuries and centuries old, have achieved that kind of um, ultimate ambition that all good, good, you know, quote unquote, cunning mafias aspire to, That's right. which is the condition of simple invisibility. Yep. Right. You know, and and that's how that's how the Jersey mafia syndicates have controlled the island and been so successful for so long. They don't have to run around and shoot people because you know traditionally. They are the police force. They are the prosecution system. They, they, they own the everything. Yeah. And why yeah. it's such a striking story is because, in fact, that's what's happening around the world. I mean, the same things that mm. you're describing that happened in Jersey is what is currently happening with transnational crime around the world as yeah. mob, uh, you know, mob figures try to take over governments. We saw it with Donald Trump. We've seen it in other countries where the organized crime is sort of coming out of the underworld and taking over our government. And the price that, that, yeah, or Boris Johnson, exactly. And the price that people pay for that is the abuse of these children, for example, just as one example, is because, you know, these 
governments that want to be autocratic and tyrannical are interested in money and power. They're not going to be interested in looking after the children or looking after your rights in any other way, whether it's women's rights or speech or anything else. They're interested only in the money. And so allowing them even a toehold of power is so dangerous to democracy around the world. And there's you know, something so striking about the documentary yesterday that really showed you what would happen in the, if you let this go get out of control, that you would lend, you land up sacrificing your children. Yeah. And I, I, for example, at least since the early 1990s, the collapse of communism, Russian money, Russia, and there's no, there's no meaningful yeah. distinction between the state and the mob in a place like Russia. And indeed, that's probably true in a, a lot of most other jurisdictions around the world, but it's particularly acute in Russia. The Russians were clearly laundering in the chaos of the collapse of communism, they were putting billions and billions uh, you know, of dollar equivalents of, of Russian money being laundered through Jersey. And the, yeah. the, the Jersey elite and the city of London, British elite, are so greedy, frankly, and amoral. They gradually, over a period of some decades, have become basically poisoned and bought and purchased by all this foreign money power. And now we see Russian power in Britain as just extraordinary you know boris johnson appointed the son of a former kgb boss into the jersey sorry into the london into the uk legislature you know, yeah. you know we've, so we've got a KGB, you know a son of a kgb man and only today it was revealed that they just spent like two and a half million pounds refitting the press facilities in downing street and they've used a russian firm to do it yeah i mean to install yeah. microphones so, and, and receivers yeah it's, yeah. it's awful. And so what's going to happen is, you know, these, this Russian mob is swamping our democracy in a way that is, you know, just untenable for Western societies. And, and maybe we're learning in Jersey how untenable it is. I'm going to play another clip from, this, from the documentary because uh, this is a very, very powerful clip and then we'll come back and talk afterwards. Coming up again and again, that was Hope de Lagaran, children's home. There was one particular case file I looked at where there appeared to be gaps I was given some excuses as to why it hadn't been dealt with, and when we looked into it, those excuses just fell apart. And that was the real beginning then of Operation Rectangle, although it didn't become Operation Rectangle for a little while after that. The few victims that I met totally impressed me with their sincerity and their fear. I was born in Jersey to Irish parents. My parents were from Cork. Church town. When I was five, I went to Hope Lagaran Children's Home. We had a lot of children living in the home. Not only from Jersey, we had them from Guernsey as well. You had a lot of French immigrants that came to work on the farms. They were people as well they found that the accommodation for their children they wasn't there for them so they ended up in the home you see myself and some other lads had broken into a shop and we've stolen some cigarettes and uh, chocolates and various other things so i was sent to um hotel garen by the royal court of jersey i was there between 1963 and 64. It was run by a man called Colin Tilbrook. He ran the home like an army camp. 
Tilbrook. He's a very strict, very, very aggressive man. When he spoke to you, he didn't speak to you, he shouted at you. As young boys, I think, we made up this uh, little song. There's a man who walks through the ward late at night, Mr. Tilbrook, Mr. Tilbrook, with his little black bag and his knife as tight, Mr. Tilbrook, Mr. Tilbrook. I was terrified if he was to call me into his little office because I knew what he wanted from me, you see. It wasn't just myself, he used to call on other children as well. We used to say we we're gonna tell somebody and he used to say, well, go ahead because no one's gonna believe you. Operational police officers were saying there is a historic problem of child abuse at Haute de la Garenne. We're getting snippets of it as part of other inquiries. Graham Parry then decided that we would instigate Operation Rectangle, but keep it on the wraps. Well, that's hard to watch. You know, it is hard to watch and listen to those testimonies. And yet here they are finally getting to tell their stories uh, on the BBC, which is quite something that they've been able to finally tell their stories. I mean, Jimmy um, Savile was a was an entertainer on the BBC. So for the BBC to be putting yeah. this out is, is a fairly big deal. Um, has anyone from the palace actually uh, responded to any of this? Has anyone from the, the inner workings of the crown actually said, you know, we apologize, we're devastated, we, this should never have happened? Has Charles ever said anything about this? Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.